When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham and to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Our second reading is from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And to do, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. My text today is seven words in the NIV. Romans 13, verse 11, and do this understanding the present time. I'll come to that in a moment. Let's pray. Father, wake us from our slumber and by your spirit, clothe us in Jesus Christ. We truly do look for the resurrection of the dead, and we look for the life of the world to come. Amen.
Our Advent and Christmas theme this year is let light shine out of darkness. Do you like the cards? Did you notice the churches? It's a direct quote from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Messiah and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. In other words, this is not about me, curved in on self. For, he goes on, God who said, let light shine out of darkness in Genesis, that God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Jesus gave me God's glory. Our hearts were dark, but there was a God who once said, let there be light, let light shine out of darkness. And that same God shone his light into our hearts. The Blues Brothers were mocking it, but a Christian is a person who says, I have seen the light. And I don't care how enthusiastic that sounds or how personal it sounds, God shone his light into my dark heart. Got me an amen? It may be a direct quote, but it is borrowing from the whole Bible. The theme of light is everywhere, like light. It gets everywhere. In Genesis, God's spirit hovers over the dark forces of chaos, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. No fight, no quarrel. That same God who did that then does the same thing in human hearts today, this morning. Is it any wonder that Paul calls a believer a new creation? In the prophet Isaiah, another example, a voice is heard over the darkness of exile, over sin and death. And we hear the way our service began today, arise, shine, your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. It's Isaiah that gives us the image of dawn to describe the coming of God. You see, it's always morning in the kingdom of God. If I can borrow a little from Ronald Reagan. In John's gospel, God descends to man. The true light, John 1, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. G.E. Ladd said this, nowhere in the Bible is salvation conceived of as a flight from history as in Greek thought, the souls running away. Rather, it is always the coming of God to man in history. God does not, man does not ascend to God, God descends to man. Jesus is God descending to man in, as the prayer book says, in great humility in the incarnation. Jesus went on and said the extraordinary claim, I am the light of the world. I didn't give this hymn to Andy in enough time. Maybe we can sing it sometime during the season. But listen to this. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise and all thy days be bright. And you can see it in the gospel reading today, you can see it in the birth narratives of Jesus, which is what this series is all about, this Advent series. Let there be light. Let light shine out of darkness. Zechariah was dumbstruck at the announcement of his son's birth. John the Baptist's future job was to rouse people from their sleep. Zechariah says to baby John, you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, for Jesus, 
to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. There's no other way. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun, there's more dawn, right? Rising sun shall come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Such is the nature of light. If I can quote the Blues Brothers again, have you seen the light? Stephen Hawking once said, religion is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark to which Professor John Lennox replied in the Times, atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. Jesus is the light of the world. So, how does God open blind eyes to this light? And the answer is, miraculously. And through a word. And I want to concentrate the rest of our time this morning on a word. Romans 13, verses 8 through 14 This passage was set hundreds of years ago by Thomas Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer, and it's perfect for the first Sunday in Advent. And I'm going to take you through it verse by verse. You know, we've been doing lots of chunks of the Bible recently, and there's no way to do chunks of the Bible but in slabs. This morning, verse by verse. And I'm going to close with a testimony on the screen to show you how it works in practice. If you can do it for this person... He can do it for me. I'll show you that in a moment. So my text today is seven words in the NIV, verse 11, and do this understanding the present time. So two questions today. What is this that he's referring to? And what will we do differently if we understand? What is this? What will we do if we understand? So firstly, what is this? Well, it's the command to love your neighbor as yourself, and do this, love your neighbor as yourself. So verse 8, love and debt, if you're following the outline on page 10. In verse 8, Paul introduces the idea of good debt, not just good debt as in a sensible one, the best debt, the ultimate debt, the one that has nothing directly to do with money. In verse 8, Paul writes, Let no debt remain outstanding, pay what you owe, except the one debt to remain outstanding is the continuing debt to love one another. That's good, that's the, that's the ultimate debt. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, he renders this verse thus, Don't run up debts except the huge debt of love you owe each other. It's a very sensible verse and a very challenging verse. I do not believe here that Paul is opposing loans, all loans, as some have said throughout history. He's not saying you can't have a mortgage, which you might describe as good debt, depending on if you can service it. It is, of course, poetry and a vision for life. That said, I do believe he is saying avoid bad debt that is the kind of debt that comes from greed, the kind of debt that comes from uber desire, eyes too big for your stomach, and therefore the kind of debt that gets you into trouble because it consumes your waking moments. All of us who have been in that situation know the truth of that kind of debt. 
And people end up in that kind of debt for all sorts of reasons, bad and understandable reasons. But we know that it can suck the life out of you. I mean, some of you might be feeling this even as I raise the topic, like a trigger warning. Credit debt, large credit debt uh, with large fees, for example. And such a debt can stop you from focusing on others and can make you live in fear. Such a debt can cause you to be curved in on self. That's possible. And so I think an application of this verse might be, look, it might take time, but pay off the credit card debt. Get help when you can, if you can. Uh, stop immediately living beyond your means, and part of that will be finding contentment. There might be other problems at play. I don't know if you've seen uh, Squid Game, and please don't if your stomach is squeamish. But Squid Game is all about what happens to people who get caught financially for bad and sometimes understandable reasons. I'll never forget speaking to a, uh, a Sydney personality who deals in financial advice, and I met her 20 or so years ago, and I said to her, when you speak to young people starting out their lives, what's your best financial advice? And she looked at me straight in the eyes and she said, pay off all credit card debt as soon as possible. I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Doing this will help, will be in part help, to get on and love others, which is the debt that does go on. You can't pay it off. You can't tear up the credit card called loving others. Your task then in life is to love those around you even on your deathbed. That's what a continuing debt is in whatever capacity the Lord provides you in that moment and to be in that habit well before your deathbed because you'll only be able to do it at your deathbed if you're in the habit now. So do this. Love, one, love your neighbor. Second, love and Torah. In verse 8, let no date remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the Torah. Now, this has been a theme throughout our year with God's mega story and the series in Deuteronomy. I won't rehash it. It's online. But to say this again, you can read the Torah, the, old, the Jewish scriptures, and you really can get lost in the forest and not see the trees, you know, the thing right in front of you. The thing right in front of you, the purpose of the Torah is and always was that you love God and love others as God intended. So in verse 9, the commandments, for example, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, that last one, but the first three are about your behavior, the last one's about the heart. Paul goes on, whatever command there may be, you name it, go looking for it, name it. They are summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul here is quoting Jesus in Mark 12. Jesus distills Deuteronomy and Leviticus 19 when he speaks. So if you are loving your neighbor with all the force and energy and creativity with which you love yourself, then you will not commit adultery because it betrays a covenant. That's the argument. It's not love to do so. It's not love, for example, to murder even reputations. You will not covet if you keep the command to love, meaning you'll actually control your hearts and your desires so they won't eat you up or destroy your life and the lives of those around you. And Paul goes on, whatever command they be, 
summed up in this command. You see the point? And by the way, this isn't a blank check for accepting everyone just as they are. This is not sort of like hashtag loves wins. It's not just mere toleration. We wouldn't do that to somebody who committed adultery or somebody who was bullying at work. No, we, we call them out. This is, in fact, is a call to love as God loves, to pursue their good in God. Do this. Love your neighbor. Third, love does no harm to a neighbor, verse 10. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Love does no harm. Do you know what that means? It means that love does no harm. That's what it means. It means if you love someone, you do no harm. You don't seek to dismantle, destroy, take down. Just as an aside, I do understand the emotional and relational arguments around assisted dying. And if you read the testimonies, it's very, very moving. And that's on the agenda in the New South Wales Parliament this month. I'm not here to say what you should or shouldn't think about such a topic. And I suggest letting your local member know what you think. That's your responsibility, I think, as a citizen. And I'm pretty sure they'd want to read your comments and, or get a staff to do so. Maybe they'll respond to you. I spoke to a Christian doctor, and this is the testimony of one person, who said that his two reasons for opposing it are that this will be the first time as a doctor that we are taking down, that we are doing harm. We're called to give life, which includes, of course, care and love, um, palliative care and support. And his second reason was that it potentially creates great problems in families, especially with people who are already vulnerable. Now, he said, all very complex, got no judgment for others. And this verse is not about a sister dying. Let me just make that very clear. It's a verse which simply says, if you're thinking about harming a neighbor in any way, think again. Do this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And why would you do this? What would be your motivation? Is it some idea from Immanuel Kant? Kantian idea that he argued that the right thing to do could only be done with the motivation of doing the right thing. Kant was sort of like the philosophical and ethical equivalent of Nike's just do it. If it's right, just do it. Is that what it is? There are many reasons in the Bible why you follow God, why you are a disciple and do what he says. You know, the grace of God being one of them in a surprising way, and we're going to discuss that next year. But here in verses 11 to 14, Paul says, and do this, loving others, understanding the present time. That is, if you pick this moment in world history, you'll love, is the argument. And so we come to Advent. His appearing in the future is a reason to love now. Do this, understanding the present time. So what will we do if we understand what Paul calls the present time? Verses 11 to 14 are fascinating worth memorizing. Paul builds an entire ethical life out of placing you continually in one moment of the day. I know that sounds like Groundhog Day, but this is good news, not bad news. He places you for your whole life. He says, if you understand the time, you are at that, you were right now at that moment before dawn, and you will be this afternoon. You see, it's a, it's a metaphor. Verse 11, do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come 
for you to wake up from your slumber. So this present time, this moment, is not night where darkness reigns and there's no hope, and it's not yet dawn where the future that God has prepared for those who love Him is a reality, right? the renewal of all things. But it's that moment just before dawn, just before the sun cracks the horizon. That's this present moment, the moment to wake up. You see, it's always morning in the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, verse 11, wake up from your slumber, to which I say to you now, in the power of God's Spirit, wake up from your slumber. Some of us are asleep to God. We live for self. We like God. We like the idea of God. We call ourselves Christians. We like the Christian values, as long as they're the ones that I already hold. But there's no keenness in your life, no sense of God's coming, no leaning in to listen and change, no desire to yield on those things that you know are not right. There's a, a prayer, may God's heart, my, let me start again, may my heart beat as God's heart beats but that prayer is meaningless because you don't know how God's heart beats. Ephesians 5 verse 10, discover what pleases the Lord. And you say, does that mean I should do anything different with my life? The answer is yes, it does. The average Australian thinks that God marches to my drum. Hence the phrase, I like to think of God as... But Paul says the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber... Back to John the Baptist. In his adult ministry, he did just this. In Luke 3, verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, they were attracted to what he was saying. He said, you brood of vipers. He didn't check with the marketing manager. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He didn't listen to the person who said, why can't you make it all positive? He goes on, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not even begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as a father. Don't rest on your sense of self. There's no entitlement here. For I tell you, says John the Baptist, that out of these stones, he points at some stones, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You think you're so special. The axe has already been laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I'm mixing metaphors, but the Moffat translation... Wake up. The people get it. Well, what should we do then? You know, we've got to do something differently. And Paul starts telling them to start living for God in very practical ways. You're a soldier, stop bullying people, etc. You made the connection to Luke 1, right? Zechariah said to baby John that he would give people the dawn of new living, and that's exactly what John the Baptist did in his public ministry. Love your neighbor as yourself because you've woken up to the time. So you wake up, right? And when you wake up, you know, you scratch your eyes and you, what do you do next? You get ready for the day, verses 12 to 13. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness like old pajamas and put on new clothes, the armor of light, which he defines in verse 13 as not living for self. Don't let us behave decently 
as in the daytime, right? Live in dawn as you live during the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy, which is just living for self. Paul is telling you and I to imagine life as that moment before dawn, the night is almost over, that day is almost here, he's appearing, that moment before dawn, ready for dawn, don't press snooze. Pressing snooze is where you press on with your life, putting off dealing with God, deal with Him this morning, keeping control of your life with all the difficulty and complexity and pride and despair and fear and dreams that come with living for self. Don't press snooze. That list in verse 13 are things that characterize living the life the way you want to, filling up your stomach with desires and running from your fears and pursuing your dreams. And it often leads, often, not always, but often leads in sex and alcohol and factional living and bitterness and anger and jealousy of others. I want you to watch this video. The video is of Graham, Graham, Graham Seed, and it features on the Alpha episode. I've got two portions to show you. The first is a minute long. He has a rich, thick accent. So, you know, if you can't read the closed captions, get up from your seat and sit in this section right here. You should be able to read it. He describes here his life of carousing and drunkenness and drugs and sexual immorality and debauchery and dissension and jealousy and of sort of the, the death of bitterness or of life according to the flesh. There's one or two words in this testimony that are just a little disturbing. Listen closely. I was accused of murder when I was 15. At 16 year old, I eventually went to jail and I went to a detention centre called Medhamsley and it was very, very harsh. In that place, I was told what to do and I wouldn't do it. I was anti-authority. I had, I had a lot of physical beatings in there. I was put in solitary confinement a lot and, and it didn't help me. I just thought these people were bullies. So when I got out of there, I was more angry than when I went in. I was an embarrassment to my mother. She said, you know what? She said, you're the son of Satan. You're evil. She said, you're worse than your father ever was. Now, that was bad to me because my dad was very violent to my mum, often raped her. So for me, for her to say I was worse than my dad, it was the son of Satan and just got me really angry. And so my next step was to become a football hooligan. I started getting slashed. I got cut up across my face, had my little finger chopped off. I was stabbed four arms in the arm and chest. I've had a bottle in both eyes, I've got no front teeth. I had both my shoulders, my arms pulled out my sockets. It was anarchy. I loved to fight the things I did, which I couldn't mention, really. But I did some very, very, very seriously evil things. I was evil, I was sheer evil. Anger, bitterness, anti-authority, violent. You see how that's verse 13? But Paul says, let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Throw off the sweaty pajamas. They stink. Throw off the clothes and, verse 14, get dressed. Get dressed for life and living now, which ironically is the message of Advent. It's about living life now. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. If Christ will appear, and he will appear, be ready now with the right clothes on. James Smith says, we live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place that we long for. Or in verse 11, put on the armor of light. And he gets specific in verse 12, which means 
Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think about how to just live for self, to gratify the desires of the flesh. God transforms lives miraculously. God shows you the light. Don't watch this Graham Seed video, the second half, thinking, lucky I'm not him because I'm a good person. He represents living for self, even if your life is decent. And in the end, he finishes with the words that challenge me. If he can change Graham Seed, he can change anyone. Listen closely. By 1995, I was a tramp, and I didn't realise this then. The inside of my body was shutting down, so all I did was drink, take drugs, didn't eat. I didn't realise I was getting septicemia. I had malnutrition and dehydration. In March of 1996, some people turned up on the street, and they said to me, do you know Jesus loves you? And I chased them. Jesus, my nana sang about Jesus when I was a kid. There was no such thing a week after they came back. And I seen these Christian men and women on the street for the next six months. One morning I woke up, it was just a normal day. And I got my drink and my drugs and I collapsed. I was rushed to hospital. I was in a coma for six days. My mother was asked to come to the hospital. She went to the hospital. I was dead. I'd had my last rites on the sixth day. Consultant said to my mum that there's nothing I can do. So she said, can I have a few more hours to think about it? So my mum went out of the room and there was a lot of people there come to say goodbye to me. And then Tony, my mate, said my mum, there's some Christian lads here. And my mum went, well, what good is that going to do? How can that help him? He's dead. And they said, well, let's pray for him. So they went and prayed for me and they put their hands on my head. And they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, give this man new life. And I woke up, sat up, pulled the mask out my mouth. I was alive, come back to life. But it wasn't just a miraculous waking up of the coma. I woke up totally different. I knew I'd never drink again, I'd take drugs, I'd smoke. I wanted to help people. I actually thought I'd gone insane, to be honest. And these Christian men said to me, do you know what, Graham, you need to go on an alpha course. So I said, what's one of them? We went on the day away. So on the third talk on the afternoon, and I stood up and I said, Jesus, this is the exact words, I've never forgot it. It was November the 9th, 1996, a quarter to three. And I said, Jesus, and I, I've been told you love me and I kind of believe that you love me, but it's not enough. I need to know something in my heart. And as I said that, and I said, sorry, will you come into my life? I fell back into my chair and I was crying. I, I couldn't stop. At that moment, as them tears flooded out my eyes, I knew where I was from. I knew who I was and I knew what I had to do. So that night at 10 o'clock, I went back to the streets of Middlesbrough, full of Jesus, and I began my ministry. That was 19 years ago. And ever since then, that's what I've done. I've gone, I've told people about Jesus, I've run 141 Alpha courses. There's a couple of things I say to people on the streets or in the prison when I first meet them, because they're full of doubt, you know, I was doubtful. And I say, well, Grandma, how do you really know that, you know, you didn't just wake up out of a coma? Now, maybe I did just come out of that coma by coincidence, but I often say, for the last 19 years, why have I lived how I have, you know? Where did the violence go? Where did the anger and the rejection 
and not knowing about love. Where did that go in one night? Jesus is supreme love. That's what changes. That's what changed Graham Seed. So if it changes Graham Seed, it does for anyone. Where did the violence go? Where did the love come from? The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in Graham's heart to give him the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. It is always morning in the kingdom of God. Choose life. Choose the light. Choose Jesus. Don't press snooze. Get up, get dressed, and live for him. On page um, 12, just before the song we're about to sing, is a prayer. It's an ancient one, uh, using these very verses to pray. And I thought we could pray this prayer together as a response and uh, while the band come forward. So why don't together we pray this prayer. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armour of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came among us in great humility, that at the last day when he comes again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal who lives with him who lives and reigns with thee and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen.